You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The text for today's sermon is Mark 9, 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were, were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what are, you dis- what are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And, they, and he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said, to them. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're only going to get through half of what I had originally planned on covering this morning. Just a heads up. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and as we were reminded last week, we are desperate. Uh, we need to hear from you. We're surrounded by voices offering advice, offering counsel, some of it good, some of it not so good. This is why we need to gather with your people and we need someone to open up the word of God and to speak the word of God because we need to hear from you. We need your voice to be the loudest voice. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would attend to the preaching of the word this morning. For the good of your people, for the glory of Christ, We pray this in Christ's name, amen. In 2016, New York Times bestselling author Malcolm Gladwell published his sixth book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. In this book, Gladwell digs into the details of three high-profile cases to explore the consequences that are a result of miscommunication and misunderstanding between strangers. He confronts readers with the reality that we cannot read people or situations as quickly and as accurately as we think we can. And the errant belief that we can do this often leads to tragic instances of miscommunication and misunderstanding. Interestingly, Part of Gladwell's conclusion is this. The key thing here is humility, says Gladwell. Humility, restraint, care, 
and attention are antidotes to the idea that we can make an accurate judgment of character based on a few minutes of talking to a stranger. In reality, no one has that superpower. Misunderstandings play a big role in making wrong judgments. So take a moment, friends, to consider how you've done this at some point in the past. You've made a snap judgment about a situation or a person only to find out later that you misunderstood something vital. And this misunderstanding led you to make a wrong judgment. Now, Gladwell is no Bible scholar, but, but his advice does reflect the counsel of Scripture. We could all use more humility, restraint, care, and attention as we seek to avoid misunderstandings which lead to wrong judgments. This is good advice, friends. But is this what is happening in our text this morning? As we have seen in previous weeks, the disciples are misunderstanding some very important truths about Jesus. Is their problem that they've made a snap judgment about the Lord based on too little information? No. This is not what's happening with the Lord's disciples. Now, they do need a fresh dose of humility. We were powerfully reminded of this last week. They need to humbly, carefully, and attentively listen to everything Jesus is saying so that they will make right judgments about him. While general misunderstandings in this life can lead to all sorts of unexpected and unwanted outcomes, misunderstandings, misunderstandings as it relates to the Lord himself, misunderstanding his kingdom, misunderstanding his identity, misunderstanding sinful humanity, these sorts of misunderstandings, they can lead to eternal judgment. So we need to listen up. Last week, we found the disciples in school, learning important lessons in Christ's school of prayer. Well, this week, school is still in session, and there are more lessons to learn. In Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50, Jesus clarifies four misunderstandings. We'll cover two of them this morning and two next week. With each clarification, we are invited to respond just like the disciples in humble faith. First, notice the disciples are misunderstanding Christ's passion. The disciples are misunderstanding his passion. We see this in verses 30 through 32. Now, if you're new to Redeemer or simply new to studying the Bible, when I use the word passion, I am not talking about the strong emotion of Jesus. 
I'm using the term passion to refer to the suffering and death of Jesus. This is often referred to as the passion of Christ. So look with me at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Jesus is passing through Galilee with his disciples, but he doesn't want anyone to know this. As we've seen so often already, as the popularity of Jesus has been growing, it's almost impossible for him to move from one place to another without people flocking to him for all sorts of reasons. Now, do not draw unwarranted conclusions here like Jesus is too busy for people. Maybe he's run out of compassion and concern for those in need. No, that is not what's happening. We need we need to understand that Jesus is moving through Galilee quickly because his destination is Jerusalem. The time of his suffering and death is drawing near and he longs for his disciples to understand this. This is so important. This is his priority at this point. The disciples must understand his passion. And so he explains again in verse 31. Look at the text. For he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. We've talked about this before because this is not the first time Jesus has said these things to his disciples. This is not a simple explanation of what Jesus will endure, but this is also a profound statement of his identity. When Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and we've talked about this before, he is identifying himself as the one spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. The one who receives from the ancient of days an everlasting kingdom made up of all people, languages, and nations. This kingdom of Christ will never be destroyed. This is what God's people have been waiting for. But how will this all come about? This is what the disciples were slow to grasp. So Jesus makes it as clear as possible. He gives three steps. Do you see them in verse 31? Step one, Jesus will be delivered into the hands of men. This is not a reference to the betrayal of Judas. No, this is a reference to the father's delivering up of the son as a suitable and sufficient sacrifice for sinners. Think here about what we read in Romans 8, 32. 
he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When I think about this aspect of the gospel, I am overwhelmed by his grace. This is the first step. Jesus will be delivered into the hands of men. Step two, Jesus will be killed. This will happen by means of Romans, Roman crucifixion. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, Jesus will become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Step three, after three days, he will rise. As Peter so gloriously explained in his Pentecost sermon, as he looked back at the victorious work of Christ, he declared to the gathered crowd, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Step one, Jesus will be delivered into the hands of men. Step two, Jesus will be killed. Step three, after three days, he will rise. Friends, this is the gospel. Uh, one commentator offers this encouragement and summary. We must not forget. We must not forget God purposefully killed his son in order that he might not kill us. The way to the crown is by way of the cross. Salvation is ours by his suffering. Thanks be to God. Now, sadly, what Jesus explains to his disciples in verse 31 is precisely what they were failing to understand. They had no category for a suffering savior. They had no category for a king who would die. They had no category for victory through resurrection. So as the disciples remain in school, now being confronted about their misunderstanding of Christ's passion, here is the lesson they need to learn. Put away preconceived ideas about God's kingdom and set aside your pride In humility, listen to the words of Jesus and believe. Put away preconceived ideas about God's kingdom. Set aside your pride. In humility, listen to the words of Jesus and believe. This is not just a lesson for the disciples, but it's a lesson for all of us. We saw this last week and we see it again in our text today. The disciples had a profound problem with pride. 
When facing a great challenge last week, their pride led them to ignore prayer and embrace self-sufficiency. This week, their pride keeps them from asking Jesus for help. This is particularly sad given what they just witnessed, isn't it? They just watched an exhausted father, desperate and undignified. He cried out in faith to the only one who could help him. You would think the disciples would have learned something from this powerful example. But what do we find in verse 32? But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, I agree with several commentators that we should understand this reference to the disciples' fear as somehow connected to what comes before and what comes immediately after. On both sides of this exchange, we find examples of the disciples' pride. Perhaps they were afraid of how they would look. If they cried out to Jesus as they, as they had just seen the Father do, desperate and undignified, pleading with Jesus for greater understanding of his identity and his mission, how would this make these self-reliant men look? Oh, brothers and sisters, I think we are meant to see with great clarity the contrast between the humble father who cries out for help and the arrogant disciples whose fear keeps them from what they need most. To see Jesus, to hear his words, to believe. In response to their misunderstanding of his passion, Jesus offers this lesson to his disciples. I'll say it one more time. Put away your preconceived ideas about God's kingdom and set aside your pride. In humility, you just need to listen to Jesus and believe. This brings us to the disciples' second misunderstanding. They were misunderstanding true greatness. They were misunderstanding true greatness. We find this in verses 33 through 37. In these verses, we find the disciples engaged in a conversation that both causes us to shake our heads and if we're feeling honest, makes us realize how much we're just like them. You see, the disciples are boneheads and so are we. In our pursuit of Jesus and our desire to follow after him, like the disciples so often, we just can't get out of our own way. As Jesus has just explained again, his glorious identity and his coming redemptive activity, here's what the disciples were talking about. Verse 33. 
and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, of course, the disciples stay quiet when Jesus asked them what they were talking about. They might have been boneheads, but even they know they shouldn't admit to having this particular conversation at this particular time. Imagine a similar scenario with me, a scenario which might help us understand exactly what the disciples have done here. Imagine you're a husband and a father, and one evening you arrive home from work and you notice that something is off. The kids don't come running to the door to greet you. And as you come around the corner into the living room, you see the children huddled around your wife. She happens to have a cast on her leg, a cast she did not have on her leg when you left in the morning. One of the kids quickly yells, Mom broke her leg. Your wife then explains that she didn't want to bother you, but when she was out for a walk, she slipped and fell and did, in fact, break her leg. Now, just as quickly as she finishes explaining this to you and without acknowledging anything she just told you, you interject with great excitement, you'll never guess what happened to me at work today. I got a promotion. Load up, guys. Let's go celebrate. Now, if any of you are thinking, I've done that. <laughs> we should talk afterward. Right? This would be a shockingly arrogant and self-centered response. It would reveal that you have a massive problem with pride. Jesus has just told the disciples that he must suffer greatly. In fact, this suffering will lead to his death. And this sobering conversation does not lead to humble introspection, but rather gives way to a conversation about which one of the disciples is the greatest. You see, in the midst of their many misunderstandings, the disciples' identification with Jesus is primarily a means of attaining honor and status and position. To be this close to the Messiah would certainly mean some kind of exaltation and prestige, right? Oh, friends, it sometimes seems they haven't been listening to Jesus at all. Had they not heard him say a fairly short time before, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
Oh, Jesus has made it so clear to his disciples that he is infinitely valuable. He is worth giving up everything for. Yet here they are, still yearning for worldly admiration and worldly accumulation. Now look back at our text with me. There's there's actually a tragic irony to what Mark has written here. One commentator explains, this phrase, on the way, in verse 34, do you see it? This phrase, on the way, is a reference to the journey they are taking to Jerusalem. They think it is a glory road leading to exaltation. But this is the Calvary road. This journey is leading to to humiliation. Suffering must precede glory. I've said this several times since we began our journey through Mark's gospel, but, but here we see it again. Jesus was not the Savior the disciples wanted, but he was the Savior they absolutely needed. In, in their mind, at this point, The best savior would be the one who would conquer Rome and serve as a political liberator, setting up an earthly kingdom in which the disciples would have positions of great status and importance. But friends, can you imagine how devastating it would have been if Jesus were nothing more than the savior they wanted? In the end, they will be eternally grateful that Jesus is the Savior they needed. Don't miss that. I think there's application for us in that idea. But look with me now at verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12. This is, this is what a rabbi would do when he was beginning to teach his students a formal lesson. They would sit and he would speak directly to them. Notice what he said. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is yet another declaration by Jesus about his kingdom, which seems totally upside down. Think about some of the similar statements he has made. And again, if you're being honest, if you were one of the disciples at some point, you're like, what is he talking about? Okay, let's rehearse some of them. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. If you want to be great, you have to suffer. He who is first shall be last, and he who is last shall be first. And now he adds, the way to greatness is the way of service. If you want to be great, you must be the greatest servant you can be. Well, we've already established that the disciples 
we're struggling with pride. And with pride comes a desire for position. But they never would have imagined that the position Jesus associates with greatness would be that of a servant. They didn't see that coming. Why? Because servants weren't great. Servants were the people who waited hand and foot on those who were great. Well, maybe that was true of normal earthly kingdoms. But maybe what is true of normal earthly kingdoms would not be true of the kingdom of Christ. Maybe this kingdom would be fundamentally different. Perhaps in the kingdom of Christ, a kingdom brought about by a suffering servant, things would look very, very different. You see, in this kingdom, Christ redefines greatness. And he puts before the disciples a position to which they should aspire. The position, though, is that of a servant, literally a deacon, a waiter of tables, and a washer of feet. This is what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of heaven. To make sure we understand exactly what he means, Jesus offers his disciples and us a memorable example. Look at verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Imagine this scene. Jesus has the disciples sitting before him. He has just turned their understanding of God's kingdom upside down. And now the master teacher points to one of the children in the room where they were meeting. And as he pulls the child close, he offers an unforgettable illustration. Now, the first thing I need you to do, friends, is reorient your thinking concerning children. We tend to immediately think of babies as cute and adorable and little children as treasures. In the wider culture during the time of Jesus, this was simply not how people thought about kids. In the ancient world, a huge number of children never made it to the age of five. The mortality rate was very high. Young children were not looked at with any real sense of dignity or value. Maybe if they survived to a certain age, then they would be, but not as young children, not the sort of child that Jesus has pulled close. Danny Aiken explains, a little child was an excellent example of the last and the least. Effectively, the disciples are being told by Jesus, treat well those who have no standing in this world. Children, lepers, the mentally impaired, the physically disabled, the aged. This is the way 
to true greatness. Die to self, serve others, care for those that no one else cares for. Friends, as I was preparing for this message, I could not help but think about how jarring these words by Jesus still are. Look at the world around you right now. By and large, nobody is saying the things you hear from Jesus in this text. There are not best-selling books about the exalted life of a servant. No one is telling people that true greatness is found in laying down your life for the marginalized and overlooked and despised. Those who were viewed without dignity in the ancient world are now viewed as disposable. You see, it is true followers of Jesus, those who take seriously his words in Mark 9, 37, that must sacrificially love and care for and treat with dignity and respect all those who no one else will care for. Redeemer family, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful to be part of a faith family that takes these words of Jesus so seriously. I am overwhelmed by the number of you that are actively engaged in crisis pregnancy centers and foster care and adoption. Others of you have shown a heart to serve those with special needs and to come alongside those who are facing the challenges that naturally come with old age. In addition to that, just a, a general treasuring and valuing of children. Oh, friends, it's, it's not just me that loves to see this. But I am confident in telling you that the Lord loves this as well. And I think he would say to you, this is what it means to be great. This is what it means to be great. Keep going. Keep serving. Keep sacrificing. Don't give up. In some way, we just need to hear the words of, of the Savior in this text. We need to hear them by his Spirit, strengthened by his grace, we need to keep obeying. Keep obeying. If so many voices in your life telling you what it means to be great, don't you want this? Don't you want this? Aspire to this. You got to have this. Oh, I hope by God's Spirit, the voice of Jesus drowns out all those voices. And he redefines greatness this way. Serve. Love those who can't give you anything in return. Now I want you to notice something in verse 37. Notice again what the text says. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me 
receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus tells his disciples that when they receive these children, in his name, they also receive him. And then he goes on to say that if they receive him, they also receive the Father, the one who sent him. Here's how I would explain what Jesus is saying here. He's not, he's not giving his disciples a behavioral formula to follow. He's not giving them a spiritual checklist of activities. He's not, he's not telling them that if they do all the right things, then they'll be good enough for him. No, he's calling them to humble acts of genuine worship in his name. Here's what I mean. What's the motivation behind the sort of love that will receive the one who is overlooked and unwanted? Well, the motivation is not that it will grab you headlines, that, that people will notice you and, and give you the worldly prestige and honor you want so badly. No, for the authentic disciple of Christ, the motivation to serve the lowly is for the sake of Christ. You will love sacrificially because you have been loved sacrificially. If someone were to come to you and ask you, why do you care so much about those who are helpless and those who can't give you anything in return, your only answer would be, I'm doing it for Jesus. If this is you, hear this, if this is you, then you are revealing that your faith is genuine. And the great prize for genuine faith is Christ. And if you have Christ, you also have the Father. This is the final lesson for our time this morning. True greatness, true greatness is found in humbling yourself and pouring out your life in the name of Jesus for the good of others, especially those who can't give you anything in return. True greatness, true greatness is found in humbling yourself and pouring out your life in the name of Jesus for the good of others, especially those who can't give you anything in return. After all, this is precisely what Jesus did for you. Let's pray.